Our scripture passage today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Today, I just wanted to give a little bit of a fair warning or disclaimer that the content of the message might not be appropriate for all age levels. If you've got children or young teenagers that you're not ready to have to answer questions about sexuality, you might want to uh, turn on Right Now Media for them or find some other way to get God's Word in them. But today, we're going to be looking as we continue on in our series um, at a message that really focuses on the areas of sexuality. Um, we started a series of last time um, called Church Problems. And we're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians in this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And we're going to find here in this book of 1 Corinthians that this is really his second letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. He wrote four letters actually, but the ones that made it into the Bible were his second and fourth letter. And um, in this um, book, this letter to the Corinthians, he really addressed different um, problems that the church was facing. If you'll recall, this uh, um town of Corinth was a thriving city, actually. It was a, um, a city on the water, and it, had a, it was a port city. It had people coming and going. All kinds of goods and trade was going on. And along with a bustling city like that, you had a lot of issues. You had a lot of um, pagan and hedonistic practices. Um, you had people, um, you know, some were religious in nature, but others came from a completely non-religious background. And so this church that's planted and growing was struggling with various issues that really came from this dynamic of this city life with all kinds of a variety of backgrounds and influences that came in. And so last week we talked about church division. Um, the first four chapters really focused on that. Well, today um, we're going to be moving into this uh, message that I've subtitled the three-letter word, um, sex. And um Paul takes chapters 5, 6, and 7 and addresses matters of sexuality. And um, I, you know, I didn't know that sex was a church problem. You know, I knew it was a problem. 
um, for many in our society, many in our community, many in our families, uh, many um, right in our own midst. But I didn't know it was a church problem. But here we find Paul addressing this very important topic and in, in situation and issue um, right here in these three chapters. Um, unfortunately, sex finds its way into every aspect of society and community. Um, it's you know it's on television. It's it's on ads. Um, it just as you're scrolling through your feeds, you're seeing um, imagery show up. You find it in conversation on the playgrounds. You find it in jokes in the workplace. Um, you find it everywhere. And so it's a very important to capture God's mind and God's heart for sex. God created it. God um, made this a work of the human experience, and he's had very specific plans for it. He knows that it is um, an issue of, of life and a, a, an opportunity in life that brings a lot of fulfillment and joy, and the enemy loves to use it and really distort it into something that God never intended for it to be. Um, chapter 5 in this book is going to address sexual perversion within the church, and chapter 6 um, deals with legal matters and, and gives a long list of sexual lifestyles that really are inappropriate for God's people. And then chapter 7 addresses sexuality within marriage. Now, we're not going to take it chapter by chapter, but we're going to be drawing some different uh, pieces of the scriptures from all of these chapters as we answer three big questions. Um, these three questions as we tackle this subject of sexuality um, are going to guide the message today. So the first question that we're going to look at is who's influencing who? Who is influencing who? Sexually speaking, what's rubbing off on what? Um, the church on the world or the world on the church? Um, you know, God called um, the church to be salt and to be light, to um, be the influential force in the world. And, um, and when, we, when we're talking about influence and we're talking about what seems to be having a greater influence on what, um, we can find that the church may be losing the battle in the area of sexuality. I want to read a few stats. Um, one of the stats is half of the U.S. Christians say sex between consenting unmarried adults is sometimes or always acceptable. Half of the Christians would say, yes, it's okay for two consent, consenting Christian adults to be having pre-marriage sex. Um, 65 to 81% of unmarried Christians between the ages of 18 and 22 have had sexual intercourse compared to 79% of non-religious people the same age, according to the Institute for Family Studies. Now, I gave you a pretty big range there. 65 to 81% of Christian young adults, 18 to 22, have had sexual intercourse, and that range has to do with which denominational background they come from. Um, some from maybe more of an evangelical uh, bent, some from more of um, a mainline or liturgical bent. Here's another. Um, here's a list of stats from um, uh, Mission Frontiers in an article they wrote in 2020. Um, here's a few stats. 47% of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. Um, age 11, the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography, and 94% of children will see pornography by the age of 14. 
56% of American divorces involved one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 56% of divorces are involved with pornography. 70% of Christian youth pastors, 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they have had at least one teen come to them um, for help in dealing with pornography in the past uh, 12 months. Hear this stat. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76% are actively searching for porn. So these are stats that we cannot ignore. And we see that the issue um, of sexual obsession, um, sexual curiosity, um, an openness to premarital sex, is, is widespread, whether inside or outside of the church. So I want to read a few um, passages of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7 that really talk about this um, influence um, in our world and really who's winning the battle on the influential front when it comes to sexuality. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexually Im sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So here we have Paul calling out a situation, a specific situation in the Corinthian church of a sexual perversion that doesn't even happen out in the world, but it's happening right there within your church, is what he says. Um, let's jump to verses 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7 says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may have a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And here, in its context of sexual um, teaching and conversation in his letter, he's talking about the, the very important aspect of influence. He talks about, takes a, a loaf of bread, and he talks about little leaven in that loaf, in that loaf influences the whole loaf. And so he's talking about the little bit, the little bit of openness you have to matters of indiscretion sexually can work its way and have an influence. Um, let's jump to 1 Corinthians 6, read verses 7 through 11, where it says, Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And here's where that list of perversion comes in. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. And so here we find this list of different sexual perversions along with other atrocities that we can engage in um, before we knew Christ, but yet can still be present. Um, this action and activity can still be present even within the church. And here we find Paul calling that out. Now, Who's influencing who? 
Um, you maybe have heard the phrase, if you've been in Christian circles very long, that we are in the world, but not of the world. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Um, I was, uh, you know, exploring that phrase saying, oh, you know, where, where's that at in the Bible? Well, it's more of a Christian motto, but there is a passage of scripture that kind of seems to speak and maybe as a, the point in which this catchy phrase was really a derived from. And really, when we think about this idea of being in the world, not of the world, we might approach it with this thought, well, um, I'm in the world. Um, you know, I really have got no choice on that matter. And so now I must work really hard to not be of the world. Um, I must. And so we're talking about, well, I start, I'm in the world. I'm, I'm like trapped in this evil world. And so now I've got to do all that I can to not be of the world. And so we go on maybe on this crusade of righteousness or uh, attempt of in our own strength and power to live righteously. And we maybe find ourselves failing from time to time, especially in matters of sexuality. Um, and so it can become kind of draining. But here I found this passage in John chapter 17, which is really where this concept of in the world, but not of the world comes from. And I'd like to read it. And I want for you to notice where the starting point is the starting point in the world or is the starting point of the world. Um, John 17 verses 14 through 18 reads, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And so when we use this catchy phrase, in the world, not of the world, we need to realize is that we start from this place as believers. As after we know Christ, we are this place where we are not of the world. Um, we've got this opportunity to be filled with the Spirit of God. We've got this opportunity to fill our mind with the Word of God. And so we are not of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our hope is in what is coming. Um, our flesh is able to be under the submission of God and, and His Word. Um, we do not need to be thrown around by the enemy. So we start from this place not of the world, but then we are called into the world to be an influence. We are called into the world to make a difference. Now, friends, we're going to get here in to just a moment about judgment, but God sent us into the world, into the sexually perverse world, into the surroundings where things are, are, are loose and there are issues going on and there's people whose lives are being destroyed and we're called to go into that world and to be an influence. We are not... This phrase is not about us trying to do everything we can to keep ourselves from the evilness of the world, but rather we go in as salt and light, as influencers into the world. And this really needs, we need to see a revolution of sexual purity coming out of who we are in Christ and whose we are in Christ. That from that starting point, we then have got the opportunity to make an influence um, and a difference. 1 Corinthians 5, back to 5, verses 9 and 10 said, I wrote to you in my epistle, the first one he wrote, the first letter, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. 
Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So here he's clarifying something that he said in the letter. And he said, do not associate with sexually immoral people. But he said, I wasn't talking about those who are outside the world, uh, outside the church. I was talking about those who are inside the church. And here Paul is very clear that we are to hold one another accountable within the church. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got this opportunity, obligation. We've got this um, very important command to hold one another accountable. And it says to not even associate with those who are not holding to purity. And, and But he says, but I'm not telling you to avoid those outside of the church. In fact, I want you to go into the world and be salt and light in all of these matters, in these areas, especially of sexual perversion. I think that Christ would call us to have a relationship and an interaction with sexually immoral people who are outside of the church. Certainly not a sexual relationship, Certainly um, not to where you're engaging in those matters, but that you would have an influential relationship drawing people to Christ. You see, we are salt and we are light. We are the influence in this world. And yet stats show us that the church is failing on being an influence um, in the world, especially in matters of sexuality. So here's another question I have. Um, who are we accountable to? Who are we accountable to um, in, in these matters? Well, judgment um, is this kind of buzzword that a lot of people throw around. Um, they'll, they love to quote the, the verse in Matthew chapter 5, which we're going to read in a little bit, but it says, do not judge. And here we find Paul calling us to judge those within the church when it comes to matters of sexual perversion. Judge those who are in the church. Um, we uh, even find that he's going to talk about how he's already passed judgment on those who are dealing with this matter of sexual perversion. Now, the church gets a really bad rap and often accused of being judgmental. Um, a lot of times when people say, I won't go to church, I won't go be around those group of hypocrites and those people who judge. Um, and really, it's due to a lot, a lot of historical finger pointing by the church at those in the world for their sexual perversion and all other kinds of sin. And we've got this reputation of pointing our finger in judgment at those outside the world. And so I certainly am not in any way encouraging us to judge those who do not yet know God's word, who do not yet have a relationship with Christ. The, uh, in, in so many ways, they don't know better than what conventional wisdom or what their flesh would tell them to do. However, we find that we are called to judge and hold accountable those who are within the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.12 says, For what, what have I to do with judging those who are outside? But now we're about to read a portion of Scripture where Paul is indeed judging someone within the church. Um, let's read what 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5 says. Now, we've already read first verse, so I'm going to read that again, but then keep going. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. 
um, more than likely like a stepmom situation or something like that. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one, deliver that guy to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we are called to hold one another accountable to sexual purity. And those who are choosing to not um, follow God's word in the matters of sex, are, are, we are called to go as far as to even put them out of the fellowship. Um, we are called to actually... Um, Use hard love, use judgmental tone, whatever it may be. And it's not for the sake of hate. It's not for the sake of looking down our nose. It's for the sake of love. Did you notice what Paul said? He said that they may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Our whole goal and purpose in holding one another accountable, however that needs to look, is that they may be saved. That they may be brought into righteousness and holiness. That they may not be enslaved any longer to the flesh. That that they might find freedom in Christ, that they might find wholeness, that their marriage might be saved, that they might be um, living a life filled with blessing. And we go to whatever extent it does to hold one another accountable. Now, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, as is often quoted when criticizing the church, I want to read it. It says, Judge not that you have not been judged, or lest you be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, the plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your, your brother's eye. And what the Lord is really calling us to, and this really has nothing to do with judging those outside the church. Did you notice it says when you're you know, judging your brother? Talking about how do we properly judge our brothers and sisters in Christ, hold one another accountable. And he's really calling us away from legalistic judgment. Sitting from some high place of holy superiority, but rather we come down off that high horse and we judge in the same manner we want to be judged. We judge with grace. We judge with love. We come along and say, I believe that God's got a better way for us here. And we come alongside and we step off that legal. You see, the, the Lord was talking to people who would sit on some manufactured holiness with their finger pointing at everyone and they were not open to allowing their lives to be examined in any way because the Lord used the word hypocrite here. And he said, don't you see that you've got your own sin in your own eye, your own issues? First, you need to get rid of those issues. You need to be submitting yourself to God's grace and holiness. And you know, when you experience the grace of Jesus Christ, 
You then walk in a far more understanding way and you're sitting in a greater position to communicate in a way that God would have us to communicate as we hold one another accountable. You see, every single one of us who are Walking with God very long, our lives are being exposed. Our guys are our lives are constantly being um, exposed to the righteousness of God and to God's holiness, and He's doing a continual work in our lives. And so, because that's going on, it puts us in a position to speak to our brothers who are in sin, and we can speak to them in a manner of of the same the same grace that's been given to us. We offer to them, and it is through grace that we are saved. It's through grace that we are changed. So Jesus looks for humble judgment that hopes for redemption in our brothers and sisters. And then we even find, how do you properly do this um, holding one another accountable? And I'm not going to read the passage, but if you want to, in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, we get this four-part prescription for the proper way to hold our brothers and sisters accountable. And we don't jump right to kicking someone out. We, we start by talking to them one-on-one. We, we, if, if they're not ready to hear from one-on-one, maybe we take another brother's sister with us and we talk to them again and then maybe we bring it in front of a, a larger group in the church and if they still do not want to hear anything about this righteousness that we find in God's word then maybe you go to the place well then maybe you need to uh, you know not be among us and you need to go see what a life of sin really brings and so anyway that's the biblical prescription of walking through this aspect of judgment and really, if we would submit ourselves to such a process, if we would you know, find a community of believers that genuinely wanted um, accountability and wanted to walk in holiness and were willing to have our lives um, you know, submitted one to another, because one, we trust one another and we trust God's word, what that will bring is this protection, this covering that God so desires within his church. And really, it's up to you. Accountability comes down to whether you want to submit to accountability or not. Because let's face it, if there's something said at the church where you attend, if there's something said at Rochester Life that you don't like, you've got every opportunity to go down to the, the, the church down the road and, and go check out what they have to say. But when you decide that I want to be in community and submissive to a caring community of believers who are all seeking holiness and righteousness, especially in matters of sexuality, you're going to find a protection, but it's something that you choose to submit yourself to. And I choose to submit myself to. And 1 Corinthians 6, 1-5 through says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more um, things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge or those outside basically going to a secular court to decide these things is what he's saying? I say, to, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? And you see what we have being spoken of here right in the middle of this talk on sex is all of a sudden Paul talks about, and you're taking one another to court. Well, I got a question for you. 
How many people have you known that are struggling with some matters of sexual perversion that, that leads to divorce, leads to fights, leads to division? How often does that go before court? All the time. Just go to the county courthouse and find out how many people are filing for divorce and how many of them. We already know that a lot of it's dealing with uh, pornography and sexual perversion and adultery and all of this. So we find here that it's, it's very appropriate for Paul to say, and stop going to a legal court. Rather, submit yourself to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Rather, submit yourself to a court that loves you. Rather, submit yourself to a group of people who have God's word at their disposal and are directed by his holy commands. Isn't that who you'd rather have judge your situation and come up with some sort of equi equitable plan and hopefully lead you to reconciliation and lead you to love? You see, that's what we're called to. That's what the church is all about. And so we ask this question, who's accountable to who? I want to challenge you that in every area of life, choose to be accountable to your brothers and sisters in the church. Because we've got the mindset of God and we've got the love of Christ that's operating. Boy, if I'm dealing with a matter that would be easy to go to court over, I would much rather go to the, my friends in the church and allow them to come up with a judgment. But you know what that requires? It requires mutual submission. It's vital to the process of church covering, to church protection, and really to church discipline. And that's really a matter of your own heart of whether or not you want to submit to such a system. And really, it's God's plan. So there's one last question I want to ask related to sexuality, and that's this. Who's in what place? Who's in what place? And really, this is, it's going to seem like a point that's really for the married, but when you really think about life in its whole scheme, it's really, um, it's really for the unmarried, too. But in chapter 7, um, we're going to find really a breakdown of sexuality within the marriage that Paul begins to address. And really what I'm going to talk about is the place, the order of authority in your life. Quite obviously, we're going to find here that God needs to be in first place. So when you're considering every aspect of your life, including sexuality, you've got to come to this place where you determine God's in first place. That means his word dictates what goes on in your life. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, Now the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So you need to come to this conclusion that your body was created by God and for God. He's got ownership rights of your body. And then it says in verse 15, 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So your body as a believer in Christ is literally a member of Christ. It is a part of his body. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So we find here that not only did God create your body, not only is your body joined to him, but really your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God himself dwells within the body of the believer. And it says that you're not your own. You were bought at a price. 
So we find here that God's got ownership rights because he purchased you by his blood. So we find here that in 1 Corinthians 6 lays a foundation for God is in first place. So when you're thinking about all of the different areas of struggle that you've had or ever had when it comes to sexuality, it all needs to be submitted to Jesus as first place in your life. But then we're going to find here that Paul outlines in this letter that your spouse is in second place. So let's read 1 Corinthians 7 verses 2 and 4. It says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So I know that this is probably the most stickiest waters that I can be in here in this message. But here we find that Paul says that when we are entered into a marriage covenant, that we have given up rights over the full control of our body. And rather, when it comes to sexual intimacy, that we are to give ourselves one and and, and another over to each other, and that we do not have sole authority over our bodies. Now, I'm not talking about whether you should be out running and fitnessing and your diet and all of these things. I'm just talking about matters of sexual intimacy. And here, Paul outlines that you have got to um, love one another and put yourself and your own needs as behind the needs of your spouse. Now, you say, I thought you meant this is also for the unmarried, and it really is. Because when if you are sitting in a pre-married situation, if you are unmarried, there's coming a day when you may find yourself getting married. And you have got the opportunity today to honor your spouse in the way you conduct yourself sexually. You may not know who she or he is, but you to choose to honor them by keeping yourself sexually pure and saving yourself for them. Because eventually they will have this rights to you and your body. And so you hold yourself and you honor that spouse and put them above your own needs and wants currently for the sake of what is to come. So then that puts you in third place on the say over your body sexually. Now, this is very counterculture to the world that we live in and the wisdom and the coaching and the psychology because you've probably heard it said many times that you need to take first place. You need to be in charge of your life and take everything, um, you know, and for yourself. And there's just kind of a renewed statement out there in the world of counseling that says you put yourself first. Um, you have been tending to the needs of everybody else and neglecting yourself. And like I said, I'm all for establishing healthy routines and putting yourself in a place of priority when it comes to health. I'm also for you choosing to put yourself in, in somewhat a first place sexually, even within your marriage. And what I mean by that is that when you do it God's way, you actually will find blessing in your life. And so God's way, as we find here in Corinthians, is you put God first, you put your spouse second, and you put your own needs third. And so this pecking order or this filter of emphasis 
is putting your spouse in a higher place than you are. Now, I want to encourage you to be listening to this as viewing yourself as third place in this relationship and in who's got say over your body, not listening to this as, oh, that means I've got a higher rank in my spouse's life. I want you to hear it that you are in a place of serving the needs of your spouse. Now, here's the thing. When both of you in your marriage do that, you're going to find both of your needs will be getting met because all of this is under the submission of who's in first place. And so when you are serving the needs of your spouse, you also are doing it within the confines and within the ways and all of scripture that God has set for us. So I want you to remember what Jesus Christ says to us in his word. Um, And this certainly applies to sexuality because he said, love like Christ loved the church in that he gave himself for her or serving and sacrifice. And so Jesus loved the church by dying, by serving, by taking that lower place. And that's the way Christ demonstrated love for us. He died for her. And so when When you are approaching, um, you know, your marriage and the sexual intimacy involved with your marriage, you also approach it from a serving, sacrificing mindset. Remember the scripture that says, do not steal. So when we approach the sexual relationship, we do it without a stealing mindset or a dominating mindset or some sort of passive aggressive. I want to take this for me kind of mindset, but rather we um, go at it from a giving perspective. Also, scripture says, do not be controlled by the lust of the flesh. And so we approach the marriage bed, not in flesh and lust, but rather in love and giving and sacrifice. And there's a great joy to be found in marriage when these, when we both approach the marriage bed from an I am third perspective. God's first. Let's do it God's way. My spouse's needs come second and my needs come third. Now, it breaks down when either one decides to be a demanding, I'm in second place here, or really you can't do that because then you end up putting yourself above God. And so then you say, I'm in first place. My needs need to get met and nothing is submitted to God and nothing submitted to love and sacrifice and giving to the other person and it all goes haywire. So in conclusion, sexuality unfortunately becomes a church problem. Families are destroyed over people messing up sexually. Um, I cannot tell you how many times in the course of 25 years I've sat in my office with people whose lives are being destroyed because the sexuality within their lives are out of whack and out of God's plan and out of God's order. Unfortunately, I'm sitting with more and more couples who are coming in wanting to get married and they're already living together and they're already involved in a sexual relationship and they've got things backwards and there's already things that are going out of whack in their lives. There's selfishness poured in. There's uh, things that have not been submitted to the Holy Spirit and things are out of whack. Whole families are ripped out of the church when a family is destroyed by divorce. Um, I Usually whenever any family goes through a divorce within the church, neither one, neither one of them feel comfortable in the church anymore and their whole family is destroyed um, and out of the church. Churches are set back greatly over church leaders and pastors who fail more 
morally in this way. We've seen, I mean, hundreds, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people will miss heaven because of the sexual perversion of one televangelist. So this, these are very important matters that the church needs to talk about and the church needs to submit to the Holy Spirit and to the Lord, the matters of our sexuality. It's a very real aspect of life. It's often not talked about in the church, and I'm guilty of that because it's an uncomfortable subject. However, can we pray? Can we give a passionate cry to the Lord that He would move in and He would take first place in our lives sexually? Whether we're married or not married, whether we're divorced or facing a divorce, whether we're steeped into pornography, whether our children are steeped into pornography, whatever the matters of sexuality are that are concerning you, can we just start today right now by saying, Lord, I want to put you first in this matter. Whatever areas that I have that are out of whack, I want to yield it to you. I want to be submissive to my church. I want to be submissive to my family. I want to be submissive to your word. And friends, if we would do that and we would continually submit this to the Lord, we would step into the light. We would begin to share one with another and we're accountable one to another about these matters. You're going to see your life changed. So let's pray. Father, this is a very important subject um, that impacts um, everybody in one way or another. Lord God, I just pray that you would... Give your church a renewed passion for holiness, a renewed passion for holding one another accountable, a renewed passion, Lord, for loving one another through some of the most challenging aspects of life. I pray, Lord, right now for any marriage that is struggling and sexual dysfunction is in the middle of it. Father, I pray, God, that you would bring back a rightness and an order and restore a love, God, to their marriage. I pray, God, that they would would see their marriage partner the way you see them. That you would, you would bring back, Lord, a love that they've not experienced in a, in a long time. I pray, Lord Jesus, that those who are struggling, Lord, with pornography or those who are struggling, God, with um, some other um, area of sexuality, God, that you listed in your list of perversions, God, I pray, Father, that you would give them a desire to submit to you and to put you first in their life. And God, we know there's going to be sacrifice. We know, Lord, there's going to be things that just feel awkward as we do that. But Lord, we know that you and your ways and your plans, Father, are good and they're for us and they're right. So Lord God, we submit to you. We thank you for the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Um, Lord, we do not debate your word here. We, we realize, God, that you're calling your church to a holiness that may not come supernatural. And so Lord, have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to uh, talk more about these matters, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Maybe you're going to need a counselor um, and you need to get that in your life, but I encourage you to do that. And uh, we will uh, be in prayer. We join with you and we uh, are on your team. God bless you. We'll see you next time.